We're ready to begin our fourth class in the story of the Apostle Peter, and the fourth class will be denial. We'll read Mark 14, uh, verses 66 to 72 in preparation for this class. Mark 14, 66 through 70, 72. And as Peter was beneath in the palace, there cometh one of the maids of the high priest. And when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked upon him and said, And thou also was with Jesus of Nazareth. But he denied, saying, I know not, neither understand I what thou sayest. And he went out into the porch, and the cock crew. And a maid saw him again, and began to say to them that stood by, This is one of them. And he denied it again, and a little after, they that stood by said again to Peter, Surely thou art one of them, for thou art a Galilean, and thy speech agreeeth thereto. But he began to curse and to swear, saying, I know not this man of whom ye speak. And the second time the cock crew, and Peter called to mind the word that Jesus said unto him, Before the cock crowed twice, thou shalt deny me thrice. And when he thought thereon, he wept. At this time, we'll call upon our brother, Alan Laban, in his class, Denial. All right, good morning, everyone. It's good to see everyone again this morning as we continue through our studies on the life and the example of Simon Peter. So, as was mentioned, this is our fourth class looking now at those events that are leading up to the culmination of uh, Peter's experience with Jesus during his ministry, we'll be looking deeply into his denials. And let's start with some context. Uh, our last class yesterday morning ended about six months away from Jesus' death, right before Jesus started to make that final trip down south from the area up around Galilee. He was up in Caesarea Philippi when we left him down south to Jerusalem. And Luke is the one that really takes over the narrative here, and he talks about these travel narratives, this narrative of his route, or uh, geographically a rather indirect route, he makes as he goes down to Jerusalem. And Peter appears specifically three times through these travel narratives. Um, he asks three different distinct questions. He asks about forgiveness. How often um, shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? That was one of Peter's questions to Jesus. He asks about the explanations for Jesus' parables around the kingdom. And he asks about the rewards the disciples would receive once that kingdom came. And as we progress through these final six months and into, these final, into the final week with Jesus, it seems as if all four of the gospel writers slow down the pace. And they pay greater and greater attention to each detail. We looked at this chart yesterday and saw how the Gospels are concentrated not only on this last year of Jesus' life, 64% of all the verses in the four Gospels are in the last year, but especially on this last week. That makes up 34%, over a third of the Gospel record. And so now Jesus arrives in the area of Jerusalem about six days before Passover and starts to make these daily trips from the area that he's staying in Bethany, up around the Mount of Olives, down to the Kidron Valley, and through the South Gate up into Jerusalem. And then each night during those final six days, he retraces his steps down to the Kidron Valley, around the Mount of Olives, and back out to Bethany. And it's during this final period that we see the interactions between Peter and 
Jesus just explode with frequency. Here's our timeline that we looked at yesterday and you also have in your handout. Uh, we covered the interactions, Peter's three calls during his first year. We looked at the vignette of him walking on the water at the close of the second year and the start of the third. We looked at Peter's confession of faith and the rebuke that immediately followed it uh, uh, in the third year. And here we are in that final week when all these interactions cluster together between Peter and his master. And while many of these interactions uh, between Peter and Jesus are recorded in maybe one or two of the gospel records, there is one series of interactions that is recorded in all four gospel records. And that is in the denials of, um, the denials of Jesus. This chart gives us a visual representation of where each gospel contains information that is unique just to that gospel, right? So that the Mark only has a very small little bit, that area in the green, that's only found in Mark. Uh, Matthew has a slightly larger portion that's only found in Matthew. Uh, most of the unique material in Luke is in that travel narrative portion as Jesus is journeying down south from Galilee down to Jerusalem. And then John, as you read it, it reads like a, a, a very unique narrative, has the majority of its unique information compared to the others. And a lot of that is concentrated on that last week and even on that last night. The blue is where the Gospels have items that are in common, where multiple Gospels talk about the same event. And whenever you see it, you should take note. In the Bible, repetition is a teaching device. And so when something's repeated, we should pause and say, ah, well, why is that repeated? What can I learn from that? Um, and all four Gospels converge on talking about Peter's denial. It's interesting to note that the most information we get about Peter's denial is from Mark's Gospel. And uh, we haven't really dug into this fact too much this weekend, but Mark was the Gospel that was most likely written based off of Peter's testimony. And so you get a unique perspective on Peter by looking at the gospel that was largely comprised of Peter's observations about Jesus. And Peter, in his humility, in Mark's gospel, records the most detail. It's one of the only places where Mark records more detail than the other gospels about that denial. In addition to what we read in our opening reading in Mark 14, 16, uh, 66 through 72, Peter's denial is also recorded over in Matthew, in Luke, and in John. And I'll be putting all four passages up on the screen here as we try to harmonize those accounts. So we're going to start with the, last supper, with the Last Supper. As the narrative of the four Gospels converge, this is where it's helpful to read a parallel Bible account that lines up the events. As you can see on the screen here, it's only through aligning those four accounts that we get a complete picture of all the events and the sequence that's taking place around that Last Supper leading up to Peter's denial on the night of Jesus' betrayal. We'll be zeroing in here on three episodes in particular during the Last Supper that set the stage for the denials. Just like there were three denials, Jesus warned Peter about those denials three times. And three times, Peter also made these overarching promises of how he would never deny Christ and he would always stay by his side. It's John that records the first warning. Please turn there with me to John chapter 13. After they gathered in the upper room, Jesus washed his disciples' feet, as recorded in those opening verses of John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. At first, as we know, Peter resisted, and then he insisted he'd be washed all over. And while we don't have time to look into it now, this was another turning point for Peter realizing that a life following Jesus meant a life of service. Jesus said at the end of that encounter, 
If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done for you. Um, In John 13, moving down to verses uh, 23 through 35, Jesus warned that one of them at that supper would betray him. The disciples are there left wondering if it was them that would be betraying Jesus. They didn't know at that point it was Judas. It's in that context that they eat that first memorial meal when they witness the example of Jesus washing their feet and now examining their own hearts to see could it be them that would betray their master. Jesus privately lets Judas know that, uh, what, that he knew what was going to happen. And then when Judas leaves the meal and goes out into the night, Jesus knows there are only hours left. The clock starts ticking. Then turning back to his disciples, he addresses them all in John 13, verse 33. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. Ye shall seek me, and as I said unto the Jews, whither I go, ye cannot come. So now I say to you. Peter hears this and is disturbed. First, Jesus says someone there, someone among the twelve is going to betray him. And now he talks about going to a place he can't follow. If there's one thing we've learned about Peter by this point, is that Peter wants to be close to Jesus. He does not want to go to a place where Jesus is not. He wants to follow Jesus everywhere. And that brings us to the first of the three warnings Jesus gives Peter about the upcoming denials. So moving down to verse 37, Peter says unto him, Lord, why cannot I follow thee now? I will lay down my life for thy sake. At one level, we can see Peter's growth here. Peter wants to go wherever Jesus is going. No more trying to resist his call like we saw back on the shores of Galilee. No more like trying to stop him as we saw him journey back down from Caesarea Philippi. And Peter here makes the first of his three promises. I will lay down my life for you. At this point, he does not know the ironic nature of that statement. It was Jesus that would be laying down his life for Peter. And Jesus responds, lay down your life for me? By the time the night is over, you won't even admit to knowing me. From here, we'll leave John's account in John chapter 13 and move over to Luke 22, where we see the second promise from Peter and the second warning from Jesus about those upcoming denials. Uh, Going back to our timeline, the parallel account for Luke 22 indicates that after Jesus' first warnings, uh, debate started to arise among the disciples about who would be the greatest. It was certainly a misplaced conversation, considering the, um, the, the context, but we can see where that debate arose from. Right? What, what happened just before? Go back through the timeline. Jesus announces that one of them is going to betray them. All the disciples are wondering, is it I? They're examining themselves. And it says uh, over in Luke 22, verse 23, they began to inquire among themselves. And as is so often the case, what should be an examination of ourselves individually turns into an examination of those around us, turns into a comparison of ourselves versus others. The flesh tries to lift itself up by comparing ourselves to others. The flesh likes to avoid examination when it can just examine the faults in someone else. It's much easier to examine the faults of your neighbor than the faults of yourself. It's like when uh, Jesus talked about the Pharisee back in Luke 18, who looked up to heaven and prayed, I thank thee that I am not as other men are. And we can fall into that same trap. We can compare ourselves to those around us. And when we're called to examine ourselves in light of the memorials, it's not to the others sitting around us, it's to the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus addressed the topic here, but then turns his attention back to Peter and gives him his second warning, now down in Luke 22, verse 31. 
So based on the debate the disciples had all just engaged in, Jesus knew that Peter hadn't really heard his first warning. So picking up in verse 31, Jesus appealed to Peter, calling him Simon, Simon, a double emphasis. The only time we see this used in Scripture, using his old given name that means to hear, reminding this disciple that he needed to listen. He needed to listen. Jesus says to Peter, Behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. Who is the Satan that Jesus was referring to here? What, what Satan was desiring to have Peter? Well, there's, there's two options. Uh, this could be a reference to Peter's inner adversary, his flesh, his own personal Satan. There's certainly a scriptural precedent for that. It was just uh, six months ago that Peter was called Satan by Jesus um, on their road back from Caesarea Philippi. Peter was again being his own adversary here by not taking seriously Jesus' warning. So convinced of, was he of his own loyalty that he wasn't pausing to listen, to hear what Jesus had to say. Uh, it's reminiscent of what we see over in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Peter was convinced he was going to stand and he had to pause and realize that he was vulnerable. But the other possibility here is that Satan refers to the rulers of the people, similar to how John would later in Revelation chapter 2, verse 13, refer to the Roman, Roman ruling class as Satan in Pergamos, or how Peter himself later referred to the Roman emperor Nero as the devil. Could Satan here be referring to the ruling class, to the Sanhedrin who had been conspiring over that uh, previous week to arrest Jesus? Were they interested in Peter as well? That language that Jesus uses, may sift you as wheat, is significant. It comes from Amos chapter 9, verse 9, where it's talking about Israel itself being sifted among the nations. The Jewish rulers certainly wanted to sift the disciples, sort them and separate them and disperse them apart. Ironically, it was those Jewish rulers themselves that would be sifted as wheat in 70 AD. Jesus says that he prayed for Peter's faith here that it would not fail or, or be eclipsed by the darkness of the night that was about to come. And he also tells Peter that he prayed that he would focus on strengthening his brethren. Peter's focus was still primarily on himself, right? Why can I not follow you? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus not only prayed that Peter would not fall away, but he would help his brethren not fall away either. And this was a lesson that Peter clearly learned. We read later in Acts and his epistles of the efforts of Peter to strengthen his brethren. And that word that Jesus used, strengthen, becomes a term Peter touches on time and again. For example, in 1 Peter, um, he closes his epistle in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10 with these words. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, established, and also, the opening of his second epistle, Peter returns to this word, strengthen. Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though ye know them, and be established. That same word, strengthen. Also interesting here is the use of the word converted. We alluded to this in our, uh, our first class, how here we have Peter and Jesus toward the end of Jesus' ministry, and still Peter has yet to be converted. The word converted is a fairly common Greek term. It just means to turn again or turn back. And I think it's safe to say that Peter at this point thought he had been converted. But what Jesus is instructing us here is that conversion is a continual process, just as is growth. 
there will be multiple points in our lives where we have to turn and turn again toward Christ. Continuing back in Luke's account in verse 33, um, Peter responds, Lord, I am ready to go with thee, both into prison and to death. And if there's one thing we can say for Peter, it's that he tries. In his response, he is showing that he's trying. Peter listened to what Jesus said and recalled the last time he heard Jesus use that word Satan and in a conversation. He was trying to prevent Jesus from going to his death. So you can see some growth here. Now Peter accepts that. Peter is not trying to prevent Jesus from going down this path. He's now saying wherever it leads, he will go with his Lord. Jesus responds in verse 34, I tell thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day before thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. Just like the double use of that name Simon, Simon previously would have caught Peter's attention, now Jesus is catching Peter's attention by using his name Peter. Uh, you see, even though Jesus changed the na Simon's name to Peter back in their first encounter, Jesus had only used that name, well, at this point, uh, two other times. At that first instance, back in uh, John 1, verse 42, when he was initially called, in that second instance, as we saw after that great confession in Matthew 16, verse 18, so this is only the third time that Jesus is using that name, Peter. It would have made Peter perk up. As we know, Peter in the Greek is petros, meaning a piece of rock is contrasted with the more common term for a large mass of rock, petra. Peter, that piece of rock, would only find his strength in connection with that larger foundation stone of Christ. Of Christ. And like this was Peter's second promise, this would be Jesus' second warning to Peter. Jesus warned Peter that in his coming denials, he was about to treat that rock of Christ as a stumbling stone. Peter himself would treat Jesus as a rock of offense, a rock to be rejected. Returning to our harmony of the accounts, we'll next move to Matthew and Mark, where we'll see Jesus warn Peter a third time. Right? So you're seeing we're working our ways right to left, the first warning and the first promise in John, the second warning, the second promise in Luke, and now the third warning, the third promise in Matthew and Mark, setting up this denial sequence. Following Peter's second warning, Jesus warned all of his disciples of the struggles to come and exhorts them to embrace the peace of God. The disciples then leave the upper room after they sing a hymn, and they begin to exit the city. And at first, this would seem like the prior six nights in Jerusalem, where they exited down through the south gate, started to make their way north through the Kidron Valley, round the Mount of Olives, and head out to Bethany. Um, with Jesus talking to them and teaching them along the way. However, this time, they didn't go all the way up to Bethany, as they had previous nights. Instead, they went off to this garden alongside. Luke mentions in 22 verse 39 that they have done this before, so it may not have seemed as unusual initially. And it's here, in, uh, as they're heading into the garden, that we read of Peter's third warning and his third promise, just before Jesus' agony there in the garden. Matthew and Mark record what happens next. I've got both accounts up here on the screen. Now, he isn't, uh, now this warning isn't just directed at Peter, but at all the disciples. Matthew chapter 14, verse 27 records that Jesus said to them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. But after I am risen, I will go before you into Galilee. Jesus' words here were meant as a warning, but also to give some comfort. Though they soon would be scattered, Jesus would see them again, back in the place where it all began, on those shores of Galilee. 
Though he as the shepherd would be struck, he would come back for his sheep. Peter's response here was immediate. Although all shall be offended, yet will not I. The eagerness here can be commended. His commitment here is absolute. There is no doubt that his mind is made up, that regardless of what happens around him, regardless of if all the other disciples leave, he would stick with his Lord. And there is a real admirable quality. We can be quick to criticize uh, Peter's overconfidence here, but there's a real admirable quality in what Peter says, and one that we should emulate. He says, though all fall away, regardless of who chooses and who chooses not to follow Jesus, Peter is resolved he would still follow. And it raises a question for us. If everyone else left, would we stay? If our family chose to leave the truth, would we still remain? If our friends left the truth, would we as well? What about our children, our spouse, our closest friends? If our commitment to God is first, then that commitment should remain regardless of the decision of those around us. And so you see... Peter's adherence to Jesus as an admirable quality. And in Jesus' response to Peter, note that Peter's commitment isn't criticized. Peter wasn't wrong for expressing his loyalty. Nevertheless, Jesus gives Peter his third and final warning about what was going to happen. But he was, Peter still missed the warning that Jesus was given, giving to him. And as we'll now see, Peter's commitment of never wanting to leave Jesus' side and even being willing to die for Jesus, that commitment wasn't even going to last another two hours. Because before the morning broke, not only would Peter show himself unwilling to die for Jesus, but he wasn't even willing to admit that he ever met Jesus. And in this failing that we're about to read about, Peter is a portrait of each one of us. We all face the same challenge. We all know the right standards. We know what we should be doing. We make a commitment in the waters of baptism in each new week as we gather here to remember Jesus. But in the heat of the moment, we'll often forget those commitments or reject them entirely. Paul captures this sentiment really well in Romans chapter 7, right after the, the baptism chapter of Romans chapter 6, which details the commitment that we make to put the flesh to death. In Romans chapter 7, Paul talks about how we still struggle with the flesh anyway, and doing the things that we know are against Christ, that we don't want to do, but yet there's this law in our members that wages war, and we do them anyway. Why do we understand the right thing to do on an intellectual basis, and then so often forget to apply it? Peter said, though all shall be offended, yet not I. And yet a few hours later, he is swearing that he never knew Jesus. How do we not do the same thing? How do we not just make commitments? It starts there, the commitment is good, but how do we take it beyond that level of commitment and make it stick and bring it to a level of action? We might know how we should behave in the particulars, but how do we control ourselves to make that a reality? It's easy to pay lip service to the principles of courage and purity and peace until you're in a moment of danger, temptation, or anger. So let's see now, as we move to the denial sequence, what we can learn from Peter's experience with this. Uh, and though we'll uh, follow the account through all four Gospels, please turn with me now over to John chapter 18. Uh, for the sake of time, we've already passed over the conversation about the two swords, and now we're going to pass over the agony in the garden, how Peter was specially asked to stay awake and then fell asleep three times again. Uh, we'll have to pass by Jesus' arrest and Peter's lashing out in violence with the sword, though that episode is going to come back to haunt him in the denial sequence. This will bring us to the scene of the three denials, to the house of the high priest. After his arrest in the garden, Jesus was taken into the city 
and to Annas, the father-in-law to the high priest Caiaphas. You see over in John chapter 18, verse 15, it notes that Peter followed. Peter had momentarily fled in the garden with the others when they were dispersed, but he was back now, maybe thinking that he's starting to make good on his promise so far to never leave Jesus and follow him wherever he goes. But notice the parallel accounts I have up on the screen for Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They, though Peter is following Jesus, he's following him afar off. Let's now take a look at where these next, next events took place. So I will note that there are two different ways of looking at the text here. Uh, the view I'm going to take is that all three denials occurred at the same location at the combined house of Annas and Caiaphas. The other view is that these residents were in two separate locations, that Peter's first denial took place in the house of Annas and the last two denials, or the, the second and third denial happened uh, in a separate house belonging to Caiaphas. The reason I take the first view that all three of these happened in the same location is the archaeological record seems to support that. Uh, you see in the 1970s, our brother Lean Rittmeyer, an, an archaeological architect, it oversaw the reconstruction of what's called the palatial mansion, which is believed to be where Annas the high priest lived. And though he was no longer the high priest himself during the time of Jesus, he was still among the most powerful men in the city. And the layout of his home gives uh, away how much wealth and prestige he would have commanded. Uh, the footprint of this house was absolutely massive, some 6,500 square feet. It was about two stories high. The total square footage between the two stories would have been around 13,000 square feet. And to put that in perspective, the average home in Israel around that time, based on kind of what we can piece together from the archaeological record, was around 600 square feet. It would be, um, to put it in perspective, that's basically moving from something the size of a trailer to a 15-bedroom mansion. The two key features of this palatial mansion where Annas lived was a large courtyard that was open to the air and a large meeting hall where their Sanhedrin could gather. The not only did the size of this building matter, and on a side note, this, was, this has been the largest single structure we've uncovered in Jerusalem, but not only was the size a matter of prestige, but its location was important. It was only a short walk over there to the Temple Mount, so the priests could directly leave the house without going down to the Central Valley, could walk right across to the Temple Complex. The house contained multiple baths for ritual wa washing, it had different houses or different rooms for the priests, a reception hall into which Jesus was brought, an adjacent courtyard where Peter would have stood warming himself by the fire. And this would have not just been the home for Annas, but also for Caiaphas, and it, had, it was big enough to host the entire Sanhedrin. The fact that Peter followed Jesus, and now that he gained entrance into the courtyard, was a testament to Peter's loyalty. And this was especially a bold move by Peter considering he had just cut off the ear of one of the residents of that house, Malchus, uh, the high priest's servant or representative, about 30 minutes before. This, this house is only about a mile or two from where Jesus was arrested in the garden. It wouldn't have taken that long to get there, so that um, memory was still fresh in everyone's mind. In your booklet, if you want to follow along, you can see a harmony of the denial sequence we'll look at on page number 14. looks a little bit like this. So I'll go through it briefly, kind of the 15 touch points we have between the four Gospels, and then we'll dive in to each of the denials in particular. So after John gets access to the house, he allows, he gets uh, the maid to allow Peter in as well. Peter then sits by the fire, and then we have the first denial. I know him not. Peter, after that, goes out 
to the porch just outside the, uh, the courtyard, and then after a little while returns back to the fire. In the meantime, the maid is speaking to others. And now that Peter is back by the fire, we have the second denial. I do not know the man. And a rooster crows the first time. An hour passes. A relative of, of Malchus joins, kind of changes the equation a little bit. And a larger crowd begins to gather around the fire. Bystanders join in. And then we have the third denial with Peter cursing and swearing an oath. Now, I know not this man of whom ye speak. A rooster crows again. Jesus looks to the crowd at Peter, and Peter remembers. So as we walk through these events, you can line them up with likely where they occurred in that palatial mansion. And as we get to the end of this sequence, you'll see why the location of these things brings another significant element to the account. So let's now turn to our opening reading of Mark chapter 14 and verse 66. Mark includes this interesting little note that he was beneath in the palace. Normally you're either beneath something or in something. You don't often see that you're both. But it's little details like that that helps us paint the picture and helps uh, kind of give this reality to the text. The, the courtyard was in fact slightly recessed. It was a few steps down from the reception hall where the trial took place. But that courtyard was still in the palace. So yes, it was both beneath, a few step downs from the main area, and still in the palace. Recessed by only a step or two, so the events in that main hall would still certainly be audible and maybe even visible to those who stood without. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 69 likewise notes that he sat without but was still in the palace, meaning that he was inside the complex but in an open area such as a courtyard. Modern translations make it a little bit easier for us to piece this together by just using the term courtyard. Luke notes that he was by the fire. This detail helps us place actually where in the courtyard Peter was standing. Because you see, when um, Brother Lean Rittmeyer did some of these excavations, you could still see the scorch marks on the tile of where fires were built in that, uh, in that courtyard to provide light and warmth. One of those fires was near the door of where the courtyard joined that great hall where Jesus would have been. And from this location, Peter could not only hear, but also possibly have that line of sight into what was happening inside. The physical arrangement here is significant. And as you can see from the layout, the courtyard was close enough to the main hall that people could be aware of what was going in in that larger chamber where Jesus was. That's why people were gathering there. Thus, all the while Peter stood without in the courtyard, he was close enough to hear what was going on. And so here is Peter by the fire, and the servant girl of the high priest, the same girl who had let him in, approaches him. Perhaps it's a question that had been nagging her in her mind since she had opened the door to let him in. And now that Peter was by the fire, she could get a closer look at his face. Perhaps she had seen Peter in the, uh, around the temple area that week. They had been there for six days already. Jesus and his disciples were, um, had been in the area quite a bit. There's no reason to think at this point that her question she asked here in verse 17 was antagonistic. For example, uh, look at the context. Look back a few verses in John back to verse 16. The maid knew that John was one of Jesus' disciples, and no harm had come to John. And look at the word also in verse 17. Uh, was she not simply wondering if Peter, also like John, was one of these adventurers from the area of Galilee? But Peter wasn't ready to be acknowledged. He was still in stealth mode. He had followed Jesus to the high priest's home, but had done so afar off, at a distance, not wanting to get too close to be noticed. And now that he had gained entrance, he wanted to remain anonymous. Observing what was going on, 
but this girl's questions risked blowing his cover. Peter had no doubt chosen, uh, chosen this spot by the fire strategically so he could be aware of what was going on in the main room, but he didn't want to be the center of attention. And so there we have Peter's first denial. As it's recorded in John, I am not. And that must have taken her aback. Moving over to Luke, we read that she looked upon him intently. Rather than a question, in Luke she forms a statement. This man was also with him, she almost whispers to himself. Matthew and Mark also record that she said to him, Thou wast also with Jesus of Galilee, or, or, um, or in Mark, Jesus of Nazareth. Peter, now loud enough to be heard by others around the fire, said, I do not know him, it says in Luke. I don't know what you're saying, it says in Matthew. I don't understand what you're saying, it says in Mark. And in this, we can see an image of how sin works in each one of us. It's, it's a progression. It's progressive. It starts with something seemingly small, but there's a slippery slope that starts to descend down. In his first denial, Peter's statement was simple, I am not. And it quickly grew into more forceful, absolute statements as we see recorded in the parallel gospels. We're gonna see this pattern continue over the next few verses. And we don't have time now to consider it, but John in particular is starting to draw a number of parallels at this point between Peter and Judas from how he is standing with others by the fire to some of his own word choice used to describe Peter. We see Peter starting down a similar dark path. Mark notes in verse 68 that he didn't wait for another statement from the girl. He moved away out into the porch, away from the revealing light of the fire and slipping away into the darkness, almost as Judas went out into the darkness of the night after the Last Supper. And as he did, the rooster crow echoed through the night. At this point, it's likely around midnight. Jesus said before the cock crow twice, you will deny me thrice. And with that first rooster crow, Peter was given a warning sign to turn back. And so too it's often with us. As we head down the wrong road, there will be warning signs to indicate that we should take notice and turn back. At this point, Peter did not. Peter's now outside on the porch where things were just starting, while well, things were just starting to get um, underway in the great hall. The Sanhedrin, while Jesus or Peter's out in the port, is trying to do uh, three things to seek testimony from Jesus to put him to death. Uh, John chapter 18, verse 19, records the strategy of the Sanhedrin in questioning Jesus. Uh, first, they were questioning Jesus about his disciples. We're not told specifically what questions were being asked, but could it be that that conversation happening in that great hall is what sparked individuals in that courtyard to ask, ask Peter? They, they overheard that in the great hall. They're asking Jesus about his disciples. The people in the courtyard listen and hear that conversation and look at Peter's like, wait a second, aren't, aren't you one of them? Second, over in John chapter 18, verse 19, they are asking Jesus about his teaching. They had many false witnesses come forward and give testimony about his teaching that either twisted the words of Jesus or misrepresented them in an, evidence to find evident, or in an effort to find evidence of blasphemy. Third, over in Matthew and Mark's account, we see that they were also trying to get Jesus to identify himself as Christ, the Son of God, a confession that Peter himself and the other disciples had made earlier, but he was not now willing to repeat in the presence of those witnesses. But Peter, now being out on the porch, was missing all of this. Peter wanted to go back down to the fire, so he wasn't going to miss any more. It's at this point that there is a difference in interpretations of how to read this text. Uh, one view is that the scene shifted to a, no, uh, a new home over to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the final two denials would have taken place. The other view is the one I'll continue with here, that the palatial mansion was the residence of both individuals, Annas and Caiaphas, and that the narrative continues in this one location. 
And so like a moth drawn back to the flame, Peter moves back down from the porch inside to the courtyard around that fire where he had previously warmed himself. But while Jesus' trial was taking place inside the great hall, Peter's trial would continue as well. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 71 notes that the questions about Peter didn't stop when he removed himself from the fire out to the porch. Another maid caught a glimpse of him out there and commented to the others at the fire, this fellow was also with Jesus of Nazareth. Mark chapter 14, verse 69 picks up now. The door girl who asked the first question reasserts her statement. This is one of them. Thus, when Peter returns and stands around the fire of coals in John 18, verse 18, the others around the fire ask the question based on the maid's assertions. Art thou not one of his disciples? Peter responds, I am not. He had a second chance with the exact same question that the door girl had asked previously and he makes the exact same mistake. And again, just like before, Peter's fast dismissal raises the suspicions of the others. In Luke chapter 22 and verse 58, another leans forward and makes a statement, just like the, uh, the, the door girl did originally. Thou art also one of them. Peter's reply is harsh. Man, I am not. Peter now goes further than he did before. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 72, he confirmed his denial with an oath. I do not know the man. Mark implies in verse 70 that there was much more to this statement as well that we're not, that's not recorded here. Um, verse 70 could read that Peter denied it again and again and again. The word there is in the continuous sense. Only hours before he had proclaimed his undying loyalty to Jesus. And now he was not even willing to be remotely associated with his Lord. And the question for us is, can we sometimes be the same? Each Sunday morning, each start of each new week, we come here to associate ourselves with Jesus, to identify ourselves with Jesus and his resurrection. We, we look at his examples and make a commitment to have the same level of faith. We make a commitment to take up our cross and to follow him. But do we then turn around the next day and live in such a way that shows we are ashamed of being associated with Jesus? Does social pressure and the way we appear before others cause us to shrink away from that commitment to Christ? Peter's statements seem to have shocked those around him. Luke notes that there was about an hour gap between the second and third denials. We see that over in Luke chapter 22, verse 59, during which the trial of Jesus is continuing on, and Peter is now in a position to hear what's happening. That must have been what kept Peter there, and perhaps how Peter justified his denials to himself. I'm just saying this little, making these statements so that I, continue, I can continue to be near my Lord, at least physically. And that brings us to the third denial. At this point, you get a sense that Peter's confidence might have been growing. He is there by the fire for about an hour now with no more mishaps. I mean, yes, he denied knowing Jesus, but at least he is physically in proximity to Jesus in the next hall over. And yes, he had lied twice about his associations, but he wasn't going to do it anymore. And at least he wasn't in the shadows anymore back in the dark on the porch. And then the tables shift. Someone new comes into the scene, and the ante goes up. Over in John chapter 18, verse 26, we read, One of the servants of the high priest, being, kinsman, uh, uh, being his kinsman, whose ear Peter cut off, saith, Did not I see thee in the garden with him? No doubt this man also explained exactly what Peter might have done in that garden, uh, what he did to Malchus, and how Peter was the man that lunged forward and chopped off his ear. Even though Peter had boasted that he would be willing to go to prison and to death for Jesus, when faced with the real prospect 
that, um, that supporting Jesus at this moment may elicit some vengeance, Peter does not go through with his previously proclaimed loyalty. This was the spark that ignited the flame of Peter's fear. After the statement by Malchus' relatives, others started to join in. In Matthew we read, They that stood by said to Peter, Surely thou art one of them, for thy speech betrayeth thee. It was the Galilean dialect that was the giveaway, notes Mark. In Luke, they are insistent, of a truth this man was also with them, for he is Galilean. Sin, as we said before, is progressive. What often starts out small grows. And we see the same here with Peter's denial. His reaction here is extreme. In Matthew 26, 74, it says Peter began to curse and to swear in such a way designed to completely disassociate himself with the Lord. The idea of a curse in this context isn't what we think of today as, as, a, as profane words, but more so it's proclaiming that if I lie in this thing, may this horrible outcome come upon me, such as let me be cut off from the land of the living if I lie in telling you this. I don't know the man. And as Peter swore that he didn't know Jesus, the air was rent by that second rooster crow. Luke notes that the rooster called while he was yet speaking, catching him in his speech. If you happen to have a diaglot on you, uh, it suggests that the cock crowing in this instance wasn't actually a literal rooster, but instead it was the, the trumpet sounding of the changing of the Roman guard. The last two shifts were apparently called the cock crows. This sequence does seem to line up with the timings given to us in Luke and Mark and would give us a sense of a timeline of the first denial around midnight. Um, the, just before the third watch started, the third denial then would have happened at the end of the third watch, which would have been around 3 a.m., and the second denial somewhere in between the two. The rooster, or the trumpet, whichever one it was, pierced the night, and that is what stopped Peter's mouth. And something else happened in that moment as well. Luke records what happened at that same moment. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. It's that same word for look that was used back in John chapter 1, verse 42, during their first meeting together. Based on the context, it means not just the physical act of looking, but a deep, penetrating look to perceive what's really going on. The physical location, again, here is significant. The amazing thing about the palatial mansion uncovered in Jerusalem is there is a line of sight between where Peter was standing in the courtyard based on the scorch marks on the earth and where Jesus would have stand, stood in that great hall. Um, there, Jesus physically looks at Peter with that penetrating gaze, one that was also full of love and hope, even as he looked upon him some three and a half years earlier by the Jordan River. That encourages Peter to finally look at himself, and he remembers. Jesus' face would have been battered at this point, as it says over in Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 14. Peter would have realized that he was also fulfilling a prophecy of his own, that he was being one of Jesus' close neighbors that was rejecting him. Psalm 31, verse 11. Peter remembers Jesus' warning now, but it's too late. But in the future, he would continually call this lesson to mind. Throughout his epistles, one of the major themes that we see Peter return to is that of remembrance. Peter may have remembered the words of Jesus um, uh, uh, over in Luke chapter 12, verse 8 and 9. I say unto you, Whosoever shall confess me before men, shall the Son of Man also confess before the angels of God. But he that denieth me before men shall also be denied before the angels of God. The scene here ends rather darkly. Peter runs out, weeping bitterly, it says, or, or more literally, weeping violently. 
he stumbles through the streets of Jerusalem as he runs until he comes to the place where Jesus was crucified. We see that note over in uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. It seems he no longer considers himself worthy of even being called a disciple as he completely followed, not only to, not because he completely failed, not only to follow Jesus, but even to acknowledge him. At this point in the narrative, if the gospel record stopped here, there wouldn't be much difference between Peter and Judas. Both enemies stood with the enemies, or both, both men stood with the enemies of Jesus. Uh, both denied their Lord in word or in deed. Both failed to follow him when it mattered the most. Both went out into the darkness and finally became convicted of the gravity of their sins and fled. But there's a difference. The difference seems to be in that Peter knew that in spite of his sin, the Lord was full of love and mercy. While Judas despaired and took his own life, Peter held on to hope. Judas figured that he betrayed the Lord, denying him in deed and in word, and surely this would mean that there was no hope. Um, that as it says in Luke 12, verse 9, that he would be denied before the angels of God. But Peter may have remembered the next thing that Jesus said. Remember, one of Peter's most redeeming qualities is he held on to the word of the Lord. Judas may have stopped at that, uh, that, that uh, quote from Jesus, denied before the angels of God. But in Luke 12, verse 10, Jesus continued and said, Whosoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man shall, oh, uh, shall be forgiven him. Peter, ever remembering the word of the Lord, remembered that his Lord was merciful. The difference between Peter and Judas wasn't the degree of their sin as much as it was their degree of belief in the mercy of the Lord. And that belief would not be disappointed. After three days, Jesus had these gracious words for Peter when he appeared to the women returning from the tomb. Go tell my disciples, and Peter also. The disciple who had wandered the furthest away was called the loudest to come back. There was still yet a role for Peter in God's plan. So what can we learn from this? Where did Peter go wrong? Well, first he overestimated himself. He didn't recognize his own weakness. He didn't heed the warning that Jesus uh, gave him. And there's a warning there for us as well. We need to be careful not to overestimate ourselves. And we are weakly given a tool to remember that, as we will soon remember in the memorials. One of the easiest ways to overestimate ourselves is to compare ourselves to others. Um, and we're called each week not to examine ourselves against our brethren, but against the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter learned that lesson, and as we've seen in our studies this weekend, he became an amazing example of humility going forward. And he spoke of the need to humble ourselves and be clothed in humility so that God can lift us up. Peter also failed to remove himself from temptation's path or heed the warning signs that were along the way. Unlike Jesus, who said, Get thee behind me, Satan, back in Matthew 16, and moved so that Satan was physically behind him, Peter lingered and lingered and lingered some more around the coals of the fire until he was gradually worn down. And there's a lesson for that in us as well, to heed the call of the rooster and remove ourselves from temptation's past. But there's also a lesson here of mercy and of grace and of hope, a lesson that no matter how much we have failed, how far we have fallen, we have a Lord that is looking for us to come back, that is reaching out and calling us the loudest when we are the furthest away to come out of the darkness and into that marvelous light. We have a Lord that is gracious, full of tender mercy, and though we may reject him, will call us back to come and follow him all the same.